you know, I think a lot of the professionals in the industry have kind of closed their mind to newer things. And I've written a lot of white papers on this that are on our website. I really think this changes the financial services industry. The community banks, if they don't change, you know, one of the papers we wrote that they'll be, you know, the next blockbuster and that who goes into a branch now? Why do you need to go into a branch? Why do you need to meet face to face with anyone to, you know, make a loan or take a loan out? I think this changes the industry tremendously. And I think that, you know, the pandemic's kind of sped that up. Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is a features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk Daily Opinion section. Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. Hi, everybody. This is Opinionated. I'm Ben Schiller. How's everybody doing? Joining me today are co-hosts Anna Bidakova. Hi, Anna. Hello. How are you today? I'm good. Good, good. And Danny Nelson. Hello. Great. We're going to discuss a very important topic for the crypto industry at large, which is about uh, institutional adoption, and particularly how fund managers are coming around to crypto and, and some of the issues that are related to that. And we're joined today by Stephen Russell. Hi, Stephen. Good morning. Thanks for coming on. And he's from uh, Emerald Asset Advisors, and he's based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And he's going to be talking today about how his company has invested more in crypto, moving away from community bank investing. He is a research analyst and a portfolio manager over there at uh, Emerald. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, Danny, so you're going to be leading the discussion here because this is a story that you found out about and you want to talk about. So why don't you take it away? Yeah, sure. And so just for everyone, some background on why Emerald is in the news right now. Emerald's banking and finance fund has a whole bunch of different positions across finance. Some of those are in crypto and its fund has recently gotten downgraded by Morningstar because they took the position that crypto was too risky of an asset class and the risk might not match up with the reward. So uh, there are two real reasons to have Emerald on. One, we want to hear from some of the institutional fund managers on the front lines of the adoption trend and where that trend is going from here, and also what it means to see that there are still pockets of finance and of the financial sector that are looking at crypto and seeing more of an asterisk and a risk than a potential reward. So Stephen, I, I know you've got a lot to say in how the fund is managed and uh, possibly a lot to think about with uh, Morningstar as well. So I I'd love to just start the conversation by uh, handing it over to you and hearing about uh, your thoughts. Sure. So at, at Emerald, we do fundamental bottom-up research, and uh, we're always consider ourselves as growth investors, no matter which product we're talking about. And the Banking and Financial Services Fund, you know, most people don't think of banking as a growth industry, but we've always looked for growth opportunities there. You know, years ago now, I guess it was back in 2017, I personally started getting involved with investing in cryptocurrencies uh, for my personal account. And that led me to kind of do more work on it and really look into decentralized ledger technology and, and how that was evolving and how that would change or, or be implemented in financial services. You know, I think back in 2019 or so was probably when we first started looking at investing in the area. And we, we've made some investments in to start with Silvergate capital, which is one of our holdings in the portfolio fund. But we also invested in some of the grayscale funds. Uh, at the time, GBTC uh, was really you know, the only way we could invest 
directly or, or semi-directly, I guess, in a roundabout way into cryptocurrencies and the fund. So that was kind of the first investment there. But you know, ever since then, we continued to do work on it and continue to learn to understand the industry and also DLT technology or blockchain technology. Something that we thought, you know, in DeFi, decentralized finance would, would really change the industry. So it's an area that we think is a growth opportunity. We think we're earlier. We think we've done more work than our peers. So we think it's an advantage, uh, unlike uh, some of our critics that, you know, take it more as a uh, risk or look at it more as a risk. So you jumping in in 2017, personal side, you obviously saw from your own standpoint, some value in, I guess, direct exposure to the cryptos. For companies such as Morningstar, they're now a couple of weeks ago when they came out with their latest report, they're looking at all the different positions as more risky. Are you surprised to see that in this environment where we have uh, lots of publicly traded companies getting into cryptocurrency, whether it be through Bitcoin investments or accepting Bitcoin, or even more companies that are pursuing opportunities in blockchain technology, are you surprised to see that a company such as Morningstar, which is plugged into that the entire ecosystem, still shows some hesitance when it comes to, at least you were saying, is a really big growth opportunity? Not really. When I speak to people in our industry, you still have the, you know, all the FUD that's out there, and you still have that kind of visceral reaction. And when you try to explain things, I always try to start with, I try to take cryptocurrency out of the first discussion and talk about decentralized ledger technology decentralized finance and kind of ease them into that. I could talk for hours and at the end of the conversation, they just come back to, but yeah, why are you invested in cryptocurrency? <laughs> you know, they've, they've missed the hour or two of discussion we've had and, and they've gone back to their original thoughts around it. So it doesn't surprise me. It only encourages me, lets me know that I think we're early in the adoption still. You know, I have been encouraged, obviously, by all the news that we're seeing with the usage in the industry, especially the NIDIG information with their you know, released last week about what they're doing with Fidelity National or FIS, you know, the hundreds of community banks that are lined up hoping to be able to give access to purchasing and selling cryptocurrencies to their consumers. So that's encouraging to me, but it really, it makes me think back to, you know, the late 90s, 1990s, early 2000s, when, where we were at with the internet back then. And I ran a technology mutual fund back then. So it's kind of like we've seen this before. We know that all of these companies aren't going to be great companies, but if we can do our research and really select the few leaders and, you know, we think that there's a lot of opportunity out there. One other note on that, and then I want to punt over to Anna. With Morningstar's report, you know, they were very blunt in their assessment. They, they said that the banking finance fund had moved outside its circle of competence. They weren't calling you incompetent, but they were certainly saying that you were outside of the circle of competence. So how do you take the experience of community banks and that sort of thing and move it over to crypto? We've always had financial services within the portfolio. And for years, the majority of the fund, it's been mostly in banks, but we've always had exposure to fintech and other areas within financial services. We've always thought that was one of our big differentiators was to be kind of on the leading or bleeding edge of fintech and understanding that. And also, if you look at the banks we're invested in, the banks that we tend to invest in were always kind of had a fintech focus within them as far as being early with new technologies, making banking as a service available to other fintech startups and things of that sort. Because the fintechs that are out there, the neo banks, the challenger banks, at the end of the day, they need to work with a bank. And so we usually invest in those banks that 
had exposure to the challenger banks and fintech startups. We think it's right in our wheelhouse. We think that this is kind of our time to shine and show the difference of what we do versus our peers. We want to have a fund that's unique uh, versus our peers. And we think that folks that are looking for exposure to this area, we have to be a little different because you can't, as a mutual fund, buy, you know, we can't go out and buy Bitcoin. We can't go out and buy Ethereum. We can't buy Cardano or any other cryptocurrencies that are out there. So we have to buy kind of the companies that are, you know, providing the tools in the industry. And uh, that's what we think we've done. And we continue to look for those opportunities. You mentioned how challenging it could be to explain other people why you are investing in this space. I wonder how often do you have conversations like that with your clients? And among your clients, do many of them understand what you're doing? Like, do you often get some feedback? Like, why are you guys doing that? How interested are your clients in this space, in this industry? So it's certainly been more of a topic since the Morningstar uh, report. But prior to that, we, we've gotten a, a few folks that ask about it. And if they come to you with an open mind, they tend to get it. And um, it's becoming more and more of a conversation. I do think that they're getting pressure from their clients. As a response to that, they have to talk to us about, well, why are you here? Why do you see it's important? Why are my clients coming to me? Why do they have some interest in it? What value do these clients see there? And I have to say, you know, I consider myself <laughs> part of an older generation, but I have two sons in, in their 20s that keep me a little more updated, I guess. And, and I feel like, you know, the folks in our industry or, or, or the, the people who are really managing the assets for the most part of the industry are older and they just don't understand and haven't taken the time to understand. You know, I think a lot of the professionals in the industry have kind of closed their mind to newer things. And I've written a lot of white papers on this that are on our website. I really think this changes the financial services industry. The community banks, if they don't change, you know, one of the papers we wrote that they'll be, you know, the next blockbuster and that who goes into a branch now? Why do you need to go into a branch? Why do you need to meet face to face with anyone to, you know, make a loan or take a loan out? I think this changes the industry tremendously. And I think that, you know, the pandemic's kind of sped that up. You know, we really looked at this from the payment side at first, and then we started looking at digital wallets and And I'm going, you know, the digital wallets are really your next bank account. Whoever has the best digital wallet and that super app, they're going to be the best banking institution that's out there, whether we technically call the bank or not. You know, so I look at names like PayPal and Square and the lead that they have. I'm thinking, you know, PayPal's like, they're going to be bigger than JP Morgan. You know, if you look at what Theme and Facebook, the access that Facebook has, the network that they have and the network capability and when Theme rolls out. That could be huge. And I don't know that Deem is necessarily the best product. Obviously, some of, the, some of these companies are going to end up being the MySpace of this kind of uh, movement. So when you first heard about the report from Morningstar, what was your reaction? Were you incredulous or annoyed or was this sort of par for the course and to be expected? You know, all of the above, I guess. You know, it was to be expected. I think I was frustrated that we spent so much time trying to explain our point of view and explain the technology, explain the use cases. And I felt like they had made a decision and they just stuck with the original decision. They never even took a look or listened to, to any of the information that we provided. Within the report, they said that 23% of our assets were in cryptocurrencies. And I'm going, okay, so you counted Silvergate Bank, you counted Signature Bank of New York, you counted Galaxy Digital and some of the other Voyager. And I'm going, you know, Voyager is, is an agency brokerage firm. I mean, that's all they are. It just happens that the people are trading cryptocurrencies. And, and now 
you know, Voyager is actually moving further along and they'll actually be trading equities eventually. But, you know, the things that they lumped into their heading of cryptocurrency was just kind of amazing to me, everything that they kind of rolled into that. And, and they just said, well, they own 23% cryptocurrency. Right. I mean, it's not exactly analogous, but this really reminds me of the way in which uh, certain service providers on the internet have really kind of dissed and wanted to kind of push out cryptocurrency, like MailChimp, for instance, would wanted nothing to do with any newsletter that mentioned cryptocurrency in it. Not because they had really any understanding of cryptocurrency, but just that it was some kind of legal risk. They imagined that they just wanted to kind of get rid of it. It seems that people are very kind of risk averse when it comes to this technology. Is there kind of a sort of blanket thinking that they want nothing to do with it? That's what we get. It's, it's really just they throw the term cryptocurrency out there and it's, it's just seen as a negative. And, and the amazing thing is no one really talks about what's going on with the U.S. dollar. No one talks about central bank digital currencies and the use case there. There's good or bad things that, that will come out of central bank digital currencies, but I think they're going to happen. I think they have to happen. The way they dropped the money into the economy last year, you know, you could do it more in a, a kind of a targeted way. You could have put money into folks' accounts and say, hey, if you don't spend it on X uh, within this amount of time, it's going to go away. You could have been more precise in how you approach that uh, with the central bank digital currency. So I think bad that you have to, as a fund manager, have to go through grayscale to get exposure because it would be much better for my clients if I could just buy Bitcoin directly. But obviously that's an issue. And and even in our industry, because we own the grayscale or have that grayscale exposure, we have to uh, put all kinds of new disclaimers on the fund and everything else seen as a high risk type of investment. You know, it has less volatility than a lot of of the names in the fintech space. You know, you look at how it's performed year over year and, and it's always been one of the better performing asset classes. So it's, it's kind of a head scratch why there's so much fear out there. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash coindesk. It's interesting that if I get you correctly, for you, crypto is not just this another area of profit making, but kind of a transformative thing that will change the financial industry as such. I wonder if you envision some kind of digital transformation for your fund and for other players in your industry. You know, maybe sometime any fund will go somewhere closer to a DeFi vehicle or something like that. No, I I do think that happens. So, you know, I think, first of all, if you can trade cryptocurrencies 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365, 
you know, why can't you do the same with equities? You know, so we've seen Exodus and some other companies have 144A offerings, which is basically a, uh, an IPO, all within a digital wallet, um, and the SEC has approved it. So why won't we see other IPOs being done via a token where you can trade it around the clock and not have to, you know, the, the market's closing at 4, 4 p.m. and you can't trade it over the weekend. So, you know, I envision not long from now where we'll be trading equities, you know, around the clock. And I, I think it's going to be within the next five years or so. I don't see why it wouldn't be. It's a cheaper way of, of actually having an IPO where you don't have to go through investment bankers. Now, I think that's the biggest part that's going to slow things down is there's a lot of entities that will lose a lot of revenue if we uh, move in this direction. And I think that's what holds things up. And I think we're already starting to see some of those funds even experiment with the crypto integration. There's a crypto hedge fund called Arca. They're very specific to the crypto space, but they have offered a uh, U.S. treasuries fund. Like the technology is on top of the Ethereum blockchain. In terms of you know what's actually in the fund itself, it's really kind of boring. It's just 10-year treasury notes. But the technology behind it is much more exciting because it's almost like, all right, well, we're going to take a pretty vanilla fund, but we're going to do it with really cool technology and show that we are able to have something with a lot more potential to break out from those barriers for, in terms of settlement, in terms of all those issues that you're talking about here. It would be so much easier to go back and all the auditing of the fund, everything's right there. You can see every single trade through history. It's more secure. There's less chance of human error. The applications within our industry for blockchain, it's, it's really endless. As a portfolio manager looking to get exposure in this space, what are the sort of areas in terms of infrastructure that you look to? I mean, you, you mentioned exchanges and mining, perhaps. What are the other things that might be interesting? Yeah, unfortunately, we're really limited because we can't do a lot of the. There's lots of great stuff we see uh, in the private markets, but through the publicly traded stuff, you know, we've got some of the merchant banks that are playing in there, like Galaxy, Diginex, exchanges. Obviously, we did Coinbase and Voyager, a lot of the banks that are playing in the space, Signature Bank, Silvergate. Silvergate, I think, is really early. I think Allen's done a great job. We've got some other banks that have quietly you know, started moving in that way. Customers Bank Corp, which is a small bank here in Pennsylvania, announced that they're developing their own kind of blockchain technology to also get into the space and allow payments. They're kind of doing a closed wall approach to start, so they'll have some some of their companies that are already clients that can do B2B payments using blockchain. So we're seeing more and more of that. But for the most part, we've really been limited on the opportunities that we can really invest in just because of the format or the structure of the mutual fund. And so much of the activity, you're even speaking about it a little bit here, in crypto is in DeFi. There's a perception out there among some people that DeFi is going to completely replace the existing banking infrastructure. I personally don't know if that's the future that uh, I would want or that is even <laughs> inevitable, but I'd love to hear from your perspective as someone who's been tuned into the banking industry for so long and who's seeing mostly on the private market, but uh, all of these things that are coming up through DeFi, uh, where you think that could be headed? So I think that one of the things I've been saying is Banking's not a place we go anymore. It's a thing we do. You know, I think DeFi and blockchain 
allows for more and more, whether it's fintechs, other challenger banks, to be able to offer all the same type of loans, type of banking uh, businesses and, and transactions without having to have, you know, the hundreds of people at the bank. You know, if you put AI in, AI, you can use that to do a lot of your underwriting. Uh, obviously, the blockchain, you can do payments back and forth with that when you're actually doing the lending, settling those transactions. I don't really see where banks go away, but I think banks will be very different in that. Why have so many bank branches? You know, there's thousands of bank branches across the country. The norm where you're not going into a bank, you're not going to have a banker that you know that you go out and play golf with and have a steak dinner to try to, you know, then get a business loan. I think you're just going to go online, look for the best opportunity, the best pricing and the best service and the best service is going to be delivered digitally. I don't think banks go away, but I think banks will be organized uh, very differently than they are now as far as less people and more decentralized where you don't have, you know, these huge offices all over the country. It's interesting if we believe that the traditional financial markets are kind of drifting into the direction of the crypto market, then it means it's going also to adopt some of the logic of the crypto market, which is by definition retail driven, more emotion driven, you know, much more volatile than the traditional market. And I think, you know, maybe the closest we came to that meeting point of the traditional and crypto market was uh, with the GameStop situation, where it looked like the traditional capital markets really met crypto and started functioning by the logic of crypto. So does this kind of a paradigm shift worry you or it makes you more excited? It doesn't worry me at all because, you know, I always, I've said for years, a market is exactly that. You know, it's the only thing that makes a stock or anything go up, it's just, there's more buyers and sellers. And if it's going down, there's more sellers than buyers. And uh, I guess, for example, Dogecoin, I've gotten so many calls about that uh, from individuals and folks that I know. And they're like, what do you think about it? I'm like, well, you know, the value is whatever people are willing to pay for it. It's, it's not for me to say it's good or bad or, or have an opinion. People get so fired up about, oh, this is horrible. And well, that's what the value is. That's what the value is. It's like artwork. It's whatever people value it at. Sorry to interrupt you. I mean, it says on your sign behind you there, Emerald, driven by research. And now you're saying uh, Dogecoin should be whatever price people want it to be. I mean, that doesn't really make sense. On one hand, supposed yeah. to be investing in fundamentals. On the other hand, it's whatever the market says right. it is. So our fundamentals tell us that it's not something that we would be invested in because we don't really see the use case based off of the work we do. But you know, if the market says that's what the value is, that's what the value is, right? So there's stocks out there that are, could be uh, technology companies, it could be banks. There's plenty of banks out there that I look at the value of some of the banks and I'm going, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that bank doesn't, you know, the earnings power of that bank isn't that great. Their loan growth is single digit. Why would someone pay that much for a bank? So because we're driven by research doesn't mean that like, the market necessarily agrees with our opinion on things. So there's actually more cryptocurrencies or tokens that trade in the market right now than stocks. And honestly, uh, personally and professionally, there's uh, less than 10 that I would really consider investable, right? So GameStop, in our small cap value fund, we were invested in stock for totally different reasons. You know, at the time it had traded down so low that there was more cash on their balance sheet than the actual market cap of the stock. 
So that didn't make sense to us, right? So that was an opportunity. But certainly uh, to where the stock trading now and where it had traded didn't make sense fundamentally to us past some point. But, you know, it's what the market deems it's worth. I mean, some people compare uh, Dogecoin to Bitcoin. They say it's a sort of magical idea of the future and that's why people are investing in it. It's not a fundamental thing. Obviously, you have a different opinion. Yeah, with Bitcoin, personally, when I look at it, you know, I, I do look at the limited number of Bitcoins that are going to be issued. I do look at, you know, I, I realize the difference between Bitcoin with a capital B versus lowercase b. And, and I hear the knocks on Bitcoin as a network and speed. But I think some of the layer two applications could possibly help to solve that. And now to get the back and forth of people saying, well, is it a currency or is it a store of value? For me, I don't care what label people put on it. To me, the value is, okay, so the security of this network is by the, the proof of work. You know, we can go into the discussion of proof of work versus proof of stake, but I think proof of work has held up. You know, you get the flood of, of the energy usage and everything. And I think there's debates you can go back and forth on that. But I think the importance of time and the fact that this has held up as a technology that's worked, that's why I put more value in Vic than I do in Doge. What do you think of the argument that more heavy-handed government regulation is inevitable? I mean, you know, on one side, I personally can't see a world in which the government cracks down on Bitcoin because it's such a decentralized network. How could you end it? You could regulate it through the exchanges. But on the other side, you have organizations on the dark web, such as DarkSide, the group that was basically holding Colonial's gas pipeline hostage at 45% of the East Coast gas lines are frozen because of this ransomware attack. I mean, the company hasn't come out and said what they're demanding, but almost certainly, given the history of these types of groups, it's going to be Bitcoin. Now, that's not to say that Bitcoin is a criminal enterprise. There's only like a couple percentage points of it that is affiliated with criminal activity, but you still have this weird situation where big banks and people such as yourself are are becoming more intrigued with and open to this type of currency that is also uh, turned people like hackers also turned to. So how do you kind of square that circle? The government and their take on how to approach this has been um, interesting and curious to me in that I think the U.S. being slow to kind of really working on CBDCs could be a, a risk to the dollar as far as if China gets too far ahead and if you can get people to start adopting the whatever central bank currency that, that China rolls out, which I don't, I don't know that will happen, but you know, there, there could be a certain amount of countries that do adopt it and certainly someone that's trying to get around whatever regulations or, or things that the U.S. may look to do could move to the digital yuan. But um, the fact, like you said, I, I don't think because of the well, decentralization of Bitcoin that the government could shut it down. And we've seen other countries try to tends to actually help with the adoption uh, when that happens. But I do have fear of taxes and how they can kind of regulate uh, via taxes. So, right. you know, the, the whole, I guess it was two, three weeks ago when, when folks thought there, were, there was a rumor out there that capital gains on uh, cryptocurrencies were going to be like 80%. Um, that certainly would uh, change how, you know, how people look to invest in cryptocurrencies. So there is some fear of, of, of what the government could do for regulation from the regulatory standpoint to slow things down uh, in the adoption. Uh, but I think the horse is out of the barn. You know, I, I think it's a little too late for them to be able to really crack down and, and, and ban the usage. 
and, and I don't know how they would technically, how they could do it. I, I think the adoption uh, helps with, the governments would be more comfortable with more mining here in the US. So the fact that uh, we're seeing more North American miners kind of ramp up as far as the size, the fact that they're looking to do mining, what they, they kind of call uh, virgin mining, uh, where they can say, okay, we, we meet all the OFAC requirements and then these haven't been used by terrorists and things of that sort. Uh, I think that helps out. And the fact that they're trying to look to cleaner energy uh, usage, I think that helps. And then, you know, when we go back to the thing of bad actors questing to be paid in, in Bitcoin, bad actors have been getting paid in U.S. dollars for years. You know, I, I think that's just a, a thing, a concept that people like to throw out there. But at the end of the day, part of the reason why I don't think we already have a U.S. digital currency is because there's some of that bad acting that the government doesn't want to shut down. But that's a whole different conversation for a different day, I guess. Speaking about adoption, I wonder if you see your peers, funds like Emerald, following your lead, also carefully stepping into, into the crypto space, trying the waters there? I, I think we will. You know, at the end of the day, you know, the stocks associated with uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain, they may be a little more volatile early on here. I think that, you know, some of that volatility will come out of it. You know, you had a I think you had a lot of folks that you had that FOMO and a lot of people went into some of the names. And so some of them got a little ahead of themselves. But, uh, you know, I think that settles down. And it was interesting um, in the mutual fund industry, you have uh, these filings that are released and they show your holdings. You know, as our performance came through at the beginning of the year, because of some of these holdings we had, you know, you start getting other calls. It's funny, you know, fund managers that I really didn't have that great of a relationship with call and say, well, what is this? Talk to me about you know, Silvergate and what are they doing and what's the difference between Silvergate and what Signature is doing and what's Voyager. And so, you know, you're getting these calls and and so you're hearing more and more people talk about these names. Uh, At at the end of the day, I think folks will move to those names because there's going to be growth there in that area. And if you're looking for growth and, you know, this is different growth than back with uh, the internet. Uh, You know, we were investing in internet names. They didn't make any money. You know, it was all just a story. Names we're investing in, they actually make money. Uh, they have great growth, but they, you know, they have earnings as well. You know, I think that's what drives the stocks. Once mutual funds, and I do think eventually they'll be able to buy, we'll be able to buy cryptocurrencies. Uh, that'll be a whole different story. But even then, uh, I think the adoption from the mutual fund side or from investors might be less in the store of value kind of uh, investment, but more in those tokens that have uh, applications within decentralized finance. I think because because you can look at them and kind of do the same type of uh, research that we're used to. And the industry is always going to kind of go towards the errors that they're, they're used to. Where you can say, okay, well, I understand what they're trying to accomplish and, and, and we're going to invest in, in this particular cryptocurrency because of the decentralized finance, whether it's something like a Uniswap or whatever, the fact that they're you know, a decentralized exchange and, and how they operate. And so I, I think people will be able to do more fundamental research there, but you'll always have folks that will invest in, you know, things that they think are store of values because there's gold investors in there and it's, you know, it's, it's digital gold, really. I just wanted to go back to what uh, Morningstar said about your fund. They said, they said that you didn't have the competence to manage uh, these crypto related investments. Uh, and obviously we all agree that that's somewhat nonsense. But do you have any issues about building up your competency in terms of these uh, investments? I mean, is there a shortage of people who understand the industry and can invest the industry? 
um, in, in a way that would be professional and sort of up to modern standards? Yeah, so <laughs> it's actually pretty interesting in our industry. There's a group that's being developed of uh, portfolio managers that are kind of, we have our, our kind of clubhouse type discussions, whether it's on clubhouse or on other platforms. I think there's um, a growing number of portfolio managers that are educating themselves. I still think though, a lot of those portfolio managers uh, find it difficult to want to talk about it with their investors. Uh, I don't think that comfort level was there yet, but I think that they are educating themselves. So I think once it becomes more widely adopted that uh, we'll be surprised how many portfolio managers have actually been doing some work in the area and that own cryptocurrencies personally. You know, that's all, that, that, I think that's always where it starts. You know, you start with your own money and uh, as a result, you start learning more and more. And uh, you know, it, it, it helps to put some of your own skin in the game and uh, it forces you to want to learn more. Uh, it's just human nature. Interesting. We hear this a lot on the retail side that the best investors are people that have gone out and just sort of learned for themselves about, you know, blockchains and wallets, et cetera. Uh, is that the same still in the portfolio management world? I mean, is it about individuals learning for themselves? I do think that's, that's where, you know, the, the beginning building blocks start. You know, you have to go out there and kind of make your mistakes before you make mistakes with somebody else's money. So you want to go out and, and uh, invest your own money and you, you, can, you can look back. And, you know, one of the things I think is, is great is to be able to go back and you look at where you made your mistakes. And so, you know, uh, I started off and I was like, OK, I'm only going to buy Bitcoin. And then I said, OK, I'm going to do, uh, you know, 80-20 allocation between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And that's all I'm ever going to buy. And then eventually I started buying some other, I don't like calling them all coins. I started buying some other tokens. And uh, I look back at some of the other stuff I bought. And I'm like, wow, that was really stupid. <laughs> you know, and then you go, okay, I'm never going to buy anything unless I read the white paper and really understand what, what's going on. So you, you kind of, and uh, just like with any other investment, uh, you start to develop your investment thesis on what you need to see in a token before you'll purchase it. I'm a big fan of limited supply. I also am a big fan of trading volumes and you know, a project could be great, but if the market cap is well ahead of where I think we're at, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, the interesting thing here is there's a lot of uh, investing that's going on where the token trades at, but people aren't paying attention to the market cap. You know, just because something trades under a dollar doesn't mean it's cheap. I don't get that thought of, well, Bitcoin's too expensive, but, you know, I can buy this under a dollar, but the market cap is, you know, 20 billion but they haven't done anything. Right. Um, so I, I think that provides opportunities for fund managers uh, because I think there's investing that's going on just because of the, oh, this thing trades at two cents and if it goes to four cents, it's a double. But if you look at the market cap, the market cap and the valuation being put on the uh, token doesn't make sense. Well, thanks very, very much for coming on the show. That was really good fun. And thank you to Danny. Thank you to Anna. And uh, thank you to Michelle Musso, who produces the show. And um, we'll see you next time. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Stephen. Great chat. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, host Ben Schiller, and guest Stephen E. Russell. Today's show has been produced and announced by Michelle Musso. 
Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcasts at coindesk.com. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk. A live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance, and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.